an incredible portrait of a stellar nursery this week on Planetary Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. You've seen the Orion Nebula, right? If not directly through a telescope, then is one of the images captured by the Hubble Space Telescope or one of its terrestrial cousins. Ah, but you've never seen it like this. Massimo Roberto of the Space Telescope Science Institute will be our guest and guide as we explore a brand new one billion pixel picture, the biggest ever assembled from the Hubble. We also hope you'll stick around for What's Up. Bruce Betts is back in person this week, offering another chance to win the new Explorer's Guide to Mars poster in the Space Trivia Contest. The search for another Earth is getting warmer and warmer. That's the story at the top of our news this week, with the discovery of the smallest extrasolar planet yet. Maybe warmer and warmer isn't the right description, since this new rocky ball is pretty frigid, but it is only about five times as big as Earth. The details are in a nice article by my colleague, Amir Alexander. You'll find it at planetary.org. Meanwhile, Mars seems to be getting more Earth-like every day. Did you hear the report from researchers at Brown University? They think the red planet once had glaciers. That's right, glaciers. Lastly, this item from Russia's ITAR TASS news agency. The head of the Energia Corporation wants to have a permanent base on the moon by 2015. No, that's not all. He wants to begin commercial mining for helium-3 by 2020, shipping the isotope back to Earth for all those fusion reactors that will be making our electricity by then. Uh Uh-huh. Of course, stranger things have happened. Stay tuned. And while you do, here's an encore Q&A segment from Emily, who is on assignment this week. Enjoy. I'll be back in a minute with Massimo Roberto and the world's biggest snapshot. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, During the Apollo missions, they captured cool film footage of the Saturn rocket stage separations. How is this footage captured? Some of the favorite images from the Apollo missions are video of the separation of the first and second stages of the Saturn V rocket, followed by ignition of the second stage rockets. These amazing images show the curving blue marble of Earth in the background. They were captured using 16mm motion cameras mounted on the forward end of the Saturn rocket's first stage. The cameras operated for less than 30 seconds as the rocket stages separated 80 kilometers above the Atlantic Ocean. After recording, the cameras were ejected from the rocket. They were enclosed in waterproof aluminum capsules equipped with para-balloons that slowed their descent and kept them afloat once they splashed down. After they fell into the ocean, radio beacons and dye markers helped the Air Force to locate them. Nowadays, capturing film of rocket launches doesn't require such heroic efforts. Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out more. It's the right time of year to gaze in wonder at Orion, at least in the northern half of our planet, Up there, just below the bright belt, is the famous nebula named after the mythic hunter. Astronomers have been studying it for hundreds of years, but no one has ever seen it like this. 
Massimo Roberto of the Space Telescope Science Institute served as principal investigator for a team that has created the biggest image ever taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. We spoke to him last week right after he arrived at the home of another famous telescope. So Massimo, thank you very much for joining us on Planetary Radio. Thank you, thank you for, for inviting me. Now, I hear you're uh, in the lobby of a pretty famous uh, telescope or astronomical facility uh, on, on the surface of the Earth. Absolutely. I'm on Kitt Peak at the, the 4-meter telescope, which is the largest here on the mountain. It's an historical telescope. And there is uh, here there is a, a room, uh, you know, with a sofa. It's a quiet room. I'm not in the control <laughs> room. I just took a few minutes out to, to talk with you. Well, I'm glad you were able to find a phone there in the lobby. Now, while you're on the ground at uh, Kitt Peak, we want to talk about some incredible work that has been done, that you have done, or led, with the Hubble Space Telescope, which I guess you just presented January 11th at the uh, meeting of the American Astronomical Society. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, we basically we unveiled a, a picture of the Orion Nebula, which is a, a huge mosaic uh, that we have done with the, with the Hubble Space Telescope. So I'm here doing my ground-based follow-up observations of the main work, the main project that we have done with the Hubble. Now, we want to let people know that they can find this image, and in fact, I would actually recommend, folks, if uh, if uh, you're able to do this, uh, pull up the image from the Hubble website, which is hubblesite.org. That's that's all you have to do, hubblesite, one word, dot O-R-G. And uh, click on the right. There is a link to the Orion Nebula, and you'll find there there is both a, a really a guided tour movie and a zoomable image, and uh, that is, it's that zoomable image, Massimo, that I had the best time playing with for about a half an hour a few yeah, nights exactly. ago. Yeah, exactly. And I must tell you, the zoomable image is not even full resolution. We could not produce uh, for oh. the web something that uh, has the same uh, detail of the images that we, that we are using, the one that I have on my, on my computer. The image, the largest image you can download is... Uh, um, it's uh, something like uh, 15 by 18,000 pixels, and the full resolution of the original images is 30 by 33,000. So it's a monster. It's, a, it's really a beast. It's the largest image ever uh, put together by, uh, by us at the, at the Space Telescope Science Institute. It's really a, sort of a milestone for those that, do, that produce this type of uh, images. So for, for comparison's sake, my digital camera does about three or four megapixels per image. This image is about a billion. It's pixels. one billion, exactly. And also another type of comparison you can, you can, I'm used to, I'm used to, to, to think about is that these images actually come with a real, original physical size because the detector that you use in your digital camera is the size of, you know, a quarter of an inch square, something like that. Basically, uh, one inch square is the size of the detectors that we, that uh, on the Hubble, have taken. You know, the, the most beautiful picture, those that are on U.S. postage stamps. Uh, this image of Orion corresponds to something like 20 by 20 inches, so it's really mm. huge. <laughs> Think about you now how much we have to move the telescope around for more than 100 orbits to put it together. So over 100 orbits of the Hubble, focusing on the Orion Nebula. Exactly. It's actually the largest uh, program ever done on star formation, so I'm sort of proud of it. Let's talk about this image and, and the Orion Nebula itself. 
Uh, it's a great one to talk about because, of course, it's one of the few nebula that anybody with a relatively small amateur telescope can actually, you know, turn toward, and if they're very lucky, might even see a tiny little bit of color in the absolutely, the gas absolutely. And dust. But I must, I must say that when uh, we when we talk about Orion Nebula, professional astronomers nowadays basically think about the Orion Nebula cluster. Uh, what's really going on there is that the Orion Nebula is like a cavity. Uh, which hosts a few thousand, we don't know exactly how many, but uh, the order of two, three thousand uh, extremely young stars. So the reason of this program is not just to take a pretty picture. The pretty picture is what allows us to measure with the highest uh, possible accuracy the brightness of this uh, factory of stars, this, this huge um, group of stars. So we went for stars. Our, the image is actually a collection of five images in five filters. Uh, in five wavelengths, and uh, they, they were selected in order to get the, you know, the physics out, measure the, the brightness in various colors, uh, in order to get the, the, the mass, basically, and, uh, and the age of these stars. We want to have a census of star formation in Orion. The Orion Nebula is, is often referred to as a stellar nursery. Exactly. Your, exactly. your work se- certainly seems to back that up. Exactly. It's, it's the stellar nursery. It's, uh, it's the cornerstone stellar, stellar nursery. It's interesting because in Orion we have something that uh, is sort of uh, impossible in our human nurseries. We see stars uh, that have weight that range over a factor of 10,000. So from imagine something that, that weighs from a few, a few pounds to, to tons. And, uh, uh, and actually the nebula is basically the product of only one star, the one that is uh, the, one of the trapezium stars, the brightest one, Theta 1 or is C. It's, uh, 95% of the light that is uh, uh, coming from the nebula is the product of the light coming, of the ultraviolet light coming from Theta 1C. Wow. So it's, it's really there is a monster there with the, the entire bunch of uh, low mass stars. And when I say low, I mean really low, much fainter than the sun. Actually, we see a population of stars, the brown dwarfs, that will never grow to the point of being star. They will never support thermonuclear uh, reaction, and even, and even probably objects of, the si- of size comparable to Jupiter. And, uh, and actually, the real, the real <laughs> record is that the fact that through the Orion Nebula we see galaxies. So I have pictures of uh, nice uh-huh. uh, galaxies. So with the Hubble, we can really go through, and actually they become a problem because uh, at some point you, you don't want to be confused by, by the background objects. Other than the sheer beauty of this image, the the next impression that I was given was of this nebula as an extremely dynamic place. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it's, a, it's a very chaotic and harsh environment. It's not the place. It, it's interesting, actually, because we think that the sun is born in uh, this type of uh, environment. Most of the stars are born in this type of environment. So if you take just a, an, if you think that the, the sun is an average system and, the, and, and our Earth is around an, an average star, then we must come from something very similar. But this is not the place where a planetary system like ours easily gets uh, is built, because uh, the uh, the density is so high, the stars are packed so densely that they interfere one with the other. In particular, the big beast uh, is actually destroying the planetary, the protoplanetary systems, the very young planetary systems in the nearby stars, and we see this clearly with the Hubble. So you see this, this tremendous interaction from the very bright stars 
and uh, and all the dwarfs, the little stars, like the sun and even smaller, that they are actually destroyed. They are they are they don't evolve the way they should evolve, uh, according to our models, because they are uh, in the presence of the, of the monsters. Massimo Roberto of the Space Telescope Science Institute and principal investigator for the creation of the new Orion Nebula mosaic. He'll be back to answer more questions about the formation of our own solar system and others right after this. This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars. We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. We didn't just build it. We attempted to put that first solar sail in orbit, and we're going to try again. You can read about all our exciting projects and get the latest space exploration news in depth at the Society's exciting and informative website, planetary.org. You can also preview our full-color magazine, The Planetary Report. It's just one of our many member benefits. Want to learn more? Call us at 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. Our guest is Massimo Roberto of the Space Telescope Science Institute. I still had a couple of questions for Massimo about what his giant image of the Orion Nebula tells us about the formation of solar systems including the one we call home. If our neighborhood of space billions of years ago didn't really look much like the Orion Nebula, still we come from some kind of a, a similar situation. And, and, and in spite of the fact that these protoplanetary disks, I guess, are being ripped apart by the bigger stars in Orion, you do have some that are, that are pointed out in the image. Absolutely. If you, if you actually if you, if you go on the web page and, as you said, you go on the zoomable image, and you just zoom, 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 zoom to the maximum zoom, which is a factor of 10, and, uh, and without moving the, the, the window, just uh, you go through straight at the center, you will see at the center this spectacular uh, dark silhouette disk. I got emails from people asking me if uh, we took a picture of a, of a spacecraft of aliens. <laughs> it looks really weird. It's a, it's, a little, it's a little well-defined dark streak. It's, uh, exactly. It's, uh, and this is a perfect, uh, the, the, the best example, the best-known example of uh, a protoplanetary disk, I would say. It's a system which is in silhouette, against the nebular background is dark, uh, is cold. This is the ideal environment where planets should form. Uh, and this is sort of exceptional because it's so far away from, uh, from the center of the nebula that it's not destroyed. But if you zoom, you move a little bit more on the center, you will start seeing arcs like little comets, cometary shapes. No, and sometimes you will even see the, the dark disk inside. And all this is the phenomenology of the disk evaporation, of the disk destruction by the ionizing stars. What about some of the other features that we see in the nebula, the, the bubbles and, and bow shocks and things like that? Absolutely. We see, we see these... Uh, well, the nebula is actually is interesting the way the nebula formed. The nebula is basically a fossil uh, nebula because uh, you have to think the, the giant stars uh, produce a huge amount of ultraviolet radiation. So when everything starts at the beginning, uh, they create like a bubble of uh, extremely hot gas that pushes away and blows and grows. We call these compact H2 regions, and actually not there are the ultra-compact H2 regions, the compact. There are really tiny bubbles of hot gas around the massive ultraviolet stars. 
at some point they become so large that they may find a hole. They can basically have, uh, uh, find their way out of the parental molecular neutral gas, neutral cold gas. And at that point, all this uh, uh, hot gas blows away. We call it a champagne flow. And what we name mm. is a cavity, empty, where just filled with the radiation currently produced by the the main star and possibly all the others that are around uh, formed in the cluster. So Orion is basically seen in this third generation. It's an empty cavity, and in the wall we see the, the, all the interaction of the, of, of the, the, the present uh, uh, radiation, the wind lost by the star, because it's also interesting that you form star by putting together material, but at the same time there is a lot, a lot of mass loss from stars. So it's sort of go in and go out that happen at the same time. So you see all this printed through the walls and in the features. We see jets, we see uh, bubbles, we see bow shocks. There is, you know, I have colleagues that are specialists with this zoo of uh, gaseous uh, phenomenology, which is extremely fascinating. What about the colors, the magnificent colors? Well, the colors are as close as possible to original. Uh, but of course, are not the really original colors because the five uh, uh, the five images that we put together, three of them are actually in uh, in light that we can see with our eyes, but two of them are out uh, in the in the near infrared. So what we have done is we have played a little bit with that. So the infrared images are actually those that give the red color, and the other. Three images contribute uh, with the blue, the the, the green, and uh, uh, and, uh, and and some orange. So a bit of false color there. There's a little bit of false color. And also, I have to say, there is a, this is something interesting. Our detectors are, of course, linear in the sense that if you get 100,000 photons, you get 100,000 counts or something like that. There is a one-to-one -one or one-to-two, but it's sort of steady correspondence. Half of that, half of counts. And uh, uh, the eye is not working like that. It takes uh, uh, ten times more flux, or something like that, to, to get uh, twice the signal. The eye responds in a logarithmic way. So the eye, our human eye, is able to get a much uh, well better defined uh, dynamic mm. of the system. With our image, we, would, we saturate. Everything gets completely flat and burned out unless you sp apply tricks which we did. So we, we adapted the image to look much more in the way the eye uh, is. Basically, it's scaled in sort of a logarithmic way. Massimo, uh, so it's, it's closer to what we see with the eye than what we see with our computer if we don't apply any trick. We're almost out of time. Tell me, how was this billion-pixel image of uh, the Orion Nebula received uh, by your colleagues in the American Astronomical Society? Oh, Everybody likes it. This was, was really funny. At some point, you, you start forgetting about temperature, mass, density, and, you know, also a little bit of competition, and uh, just people start, you know, in awe in front of this beautiful color. I think our guys did a great job also producing it. You now, there are these greens, these yellow, remind me something of Rembrandt. It's, uh, it's just a pure beauty in, in front of us, and I'm, I'm really happy it can be shared with the Internet. Everybody can get it, print it, and, and, and post it, basically. So it's, uh, it's, at some point, we, we all are in, in front of beauty, that I would say. It, it is stunningly beautiful. I'll say it again and uh, recommend highly. Go to your computer right now, folks. If you're not, uh, if you're not at it, get to it. And go to hubblesite.org. Now, we will also put the link 
directly to both the zoomable image and to this little flash uh, movie, the guided tour of this billion pixel pixel image of uh, Orion. We will put those on our website at planetary.org, where some of you may be listening to this radio program. Massimo, we are out of time. Thank you so much for uh, taking us on a little audio tour of the Orion Nebula with this uh, unprecedented image. Thanks for having me. Massimo Roberto is the principal investigator who uh, led the team that put together this uh, amazing image of the Orion Nebula, a stellar nursery and uh, quite a beauty, even from 1,500 light years away. We'll be right back with more of Planetary Radio and specifically this week's edition of What's Up with Bruce Betts right after this return visit from Emily. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. How do we capture video from launching rockets? There is now a private company called Ecliptic Enterprises that is making a profitable business from putting cameras on launch vehicles. Ecliptic's rocket cams have been mounted to Delta IIs, threes, and fours, to Atlas IIs, threes, and fives, on Spaceship One, and on the Space Shuttle Tank and Solid Rocket Boosters. The cameras are tiny, weighing less than 100 grams, and can radio color images and even sound directly back to Earth as the rocket lifts off, or they can store the data for later download. The information that these cameras return as a routine part of space launches will be of incalculable value in diagnosing the causes of launch vehicle mishaps. They will also give human watchers the vicarious thrill of soaring into space. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio with Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, who is sitting across from me at the table, yes, live and in person again. Bruce, how are you? I'm reasonably, moderately, adequately okay. How are you, Matt? I wasn't overwhelming in my enthusiasm, was I? I... (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing great, Matt! (laughs) Okay. That's better. I'm glad to hear you're doing well. What's up? What's up? Planets? We got Mars. I was so afraid you'd say, what's up must come down, because we've never done that. Well, since mostly I talk about planets, that would be very disturbing. Yeah, it would be. You know, there are some near-Earth objects that, that might come down. When worlds collide. Exactly. But for now, let's talk about worlds that aren't going to collide with us ever, such as Mars, which is shining orange and still kind of bright, but fading a lot. It's in the south during the evening. You can see it as the the orange object in the south, oddly enough, <laughs> uh, looking kind of star-like. Now, Saturn, Saturn, again, is a, a spiffy object to uh, be looking at right now. Saturn is rising right around sunset, and by early to mid-evening, it is very high in the sky, high in the east, and a uh, great telescope object, as I keep telling you. Check out those rings. You can see them a billion miles away with even a small a semi-decent telescope. And then in the pre-dawn sky, the brightest star-like object you're going to see is Jupiter. No questions, no ifs, ands, or buts. It's Jupiter, and it's off in the east. There you go. Now, this week in space history, we have a birthday, a birthday of someone that uh, has been being talked about a lot in the last week or so, and that's Clyde Tombaugh. It would have been mm. Clyde Tombaugh's 100th birthday. Did you see Clyde Tombaugh's family? I mean, I heard that they were at the launch of New Horizons. I was mere feet away from Clyde Tombaugh's family, including wow. his widow, which I talked to some of his children. 
and uh, they were quite pleased that uh, the discoverer of Pluto, their their dad, now there's a mission actually going out there in New Horizons. Very exciting. So it was it was very interesting, very nice. Uh, let us move on to Random Space Talk. That had a nice sort of Flash Gordon air to it. <laughs> well, Flash Gordon <laughs> had no idea how many moons Jupiter really has. Well, neither do we. But we know what the count is right now, and sometimes I just like to update people. Jupiter is known to have 63 moons oh as of right now. That's just that's just wrong. <laughs> no, I, I checked it right before we went no, on. No, I mean, it's not fair. I mean, it is wrong. There are more moons than that. We just haven't so found So there's, a, there's a little greater than carrot in front of that. Exactly. Yeah. And it's greater than... and. Probably not equal to 63. <laughs> but right now it's 63. We keep this updated on our website, planetary.org. If you want to know what the latest count is for uh, for any of the objects, we're pretty sure that the Earth has one. But uh, uh, these these big planets, we keep finding more and more. Whew, just nasty with them out there. All right. Shall we move on to our trivia contest? We asked you, and I'm sorry, but I just find this so fascinating. What is the second highest surface gravity in the solar system. And we said for giant planets, since they're gas giants, take that at the one bar level, about one one Earth atmosphere level. Sea level, yeah. Yeah, like sea level on Earth. What What is the, the second highest gravity, Jupiter having the, the highest? And uh, how do we do, Matt? What do we uh, find out? Let's talk about this fascinating uh, subject. <laughs> Most people got it right, and uh, it is, it turns out, a gas giant, as I'm sure you were well aware. Well, yes. Uh, Neptune is what most people came up with, and most people were right. We had a couple of Saturns. We had one Uranus. I don't know where they got those figures, but uh, it is Neptune. Our winner, Tim Jordan. Tim Jordan of Eureka, Missouri, the Show Me State. Show Me. And uh, he uh, he's going to walk away not with a shirt this week. He's the winner of that great poster. Exactly. He's going to wear a poster on his back. The Explorer's <laughs> Guide to Mars, our brand newly revised Explorer's Guide to Mars poster. Uh, which has a, a beautiful map of Mars, lots of images, lots of the latest data information from all the many, 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 many spacecraft that are visiting Mars right at the moment. And in fact, that's, uh, that's where we're, I'd say that's where we're giving away this week too, Matt. But I want to talk, I want to reflect on this for just a little bit more because Neptune, I mean, that's, that's not obvious, but that whole gravity thing, it depends on how far, how massive the object is, but also how far away you are from the center of the mass. And so even though Earth is a is a little pup uh, compared to the gas giants, we're on its surface much closer to the center of mass than if you were on one of the gas giants, which is why, you know, even Neptune, not that much higher surface gravity. Saturn actually has a lower surface gravity uh, than the Earth does. And uh, and Neptune's what, about 1.2? Uh, 1.125, something like yeah, that. Yeah, okay, 1.125. So really not yeah. that much more than compared to Earth's 1G. One, one hmm. What were you going to say, Matt? I was, I was interested. No, I was going to say I didn't give the question much thought until I saw the answers coming in. And I thought, Neptune, that makes sense. You know why? Because it's cold. I figured it's denser. I thought it's it's probably it's colder than Saturn. <laughs> not good enough, huh? No, your no, your thing about it sort of being a trick uh, question was. I think, well, it's better. a combination. It's not. Yeah, it's not. It's not obvious. It's not your most massive bodies. So. We, we better move on to the next. Uh, All next time right. I was having such fun. Okay, uh, for the next contest, we're going to switch gears to spacecraft. 
and uh, talk about the Hayabusa spacecraft, which is currently off at asteroid Itakawa trying to figure out how to get home. Uh, what was the name of Hayabusa's lander, which unfortunately failed and did not land on the asteroid? What was its name, the name of Hayabusa's lander? Go to planetary.org slash radio and find out how to enter our contest and win a beautiful Explorer's Guide to Mars poster. Got to get those answers to us, though, by Monday, February 6th. That's the 6th of February at 2 p.m. Pacific time, and you will be part of this next competition for a poster. Indeed, indeed, do. Is that it? We're done. Yeah, except right. that, you know what I always loved most about the Flash Gordon cereals? Well, I don't know about most. <clears throat> I love the sparklers. Uh, the, yes, absolutely. That would be right up there. But I always love how the rockets, the rockets sound like <laughs> propeller-driven airplanes. Cool. <laughs> and, and always look like sparklers. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. No, that was a cool series for those of <laughs> you who haven't checked it out. Uh, all right, everybody, go out there. Look up in the night sky and think about rock, what rockets would sound like in your world. I think there's one coming in the window right now. <laughs> He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society. He's with us every week here for What's Up. Really, just like Ford Trimotors. We're done for this week. Thanks very much for joining us. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Have a great week, everyone. 